Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Curry Peterson-Smith, who is an activist living in Boston. He traveled to Gaza in 2009 as part of the Viva Palestina Medical Relief Delegation. He also traveled to Iraq on a peace delegation in 2004. His organizing and his writing focus particularly on black liberation, Palestinian solidarity, and U.S. empire. And he was involved in producing a recent statement signed by over 1,100 black activists, artists, scholars, students, and organizations in solidarity with Palestine, which you can go and sign at blackforpalestine.com. Curry Peterson-Smith, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. So tell me about the the origins of this uh, statement and, and what it's... Uh, what it's speaking for and against. Sure. Well, um, actually, Christian Davis Bailey and myself thought about this last year, which was uh, a pretty eventful year for a number of reasons. Of course, it was the time of Israel's latest siege on Gaza, which was totally catastrophic in the summer. And it was the time uh, when Ferguson, Missouri, rose up against uh, police violence. Uh, And so when... You know, we were watching what was unfolding in Gaza with, with absolute horror. And then when Ferguson rose up, uh, of course, that was a very important moment for the black struggle here in the U.S., and I think um, it had an importance all around the world. And one of the things that happened uh, in, in, in the midst of, of, of that struggle in Ferguson was a bunch of very visible and high-profile solidarity from Palestinians with the struggle, so early on, when the police first began to crack down in Missouri, there were Palestinians on Twitter who were sending messages of solidarity uh, and giving advice on how to deal with tear gas and things like that. Uh, and then there were actually two statements from Palestinian activists in Palestine in solidarity with the Ferguson uprising. So that was really inspiring for, for both Christian and I, and we noticed that there were not any statements in solidarity, you know, from black folks with Palestine, and so we wanted to, to work on that. And so uh, we were very involved in the Black Lives Matter movement in the past year, but on the anniversary of the attack on Gaza, decided to revive uh, this statement and, and, and send it around and, and get it published, and so that's what we did. It seems new. It's not entirely new. I notice on your website, blackforpalestine.com, uh, you've got an image of a similar statement uh, put in the New York Times by black activists in 1970. Uh, is, this, is this something that's been kept alive over a period of decades, this solidarity back and forth between African-American activists and Palestinian activists, or has it, has it really d- been lapsed and, and been revived now? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the question of, uh, when we think about the, the black freedom struggle in the U.S., which, of course, is this very long struggle stretching back to the days of slavery, uh, one of the things that it developed, you know, a long time ago was, the, was solidarity with other oppressed peoples, whether those be other people in the U.S., like uh, indigenous people um, or Chicanos and Latinos and, and poor white folks. 
but also solidarity with, with struggles around the world. And so, in particular, the, the question of black solidarity with Palestine and Palestinian solidarity with the black freedom struggle was very prominent in the 1960s. And uh, I, I think that there are so many... There are so many lessons from the 1960s that I think we're having to rediscover in, in a, a newer generation of, of activists and, and fighters. But there are there are activists who who lived through that time and who remember um, that solidarity and who I think have in 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 ways that aren't always super public, um, kind of keeping those traditions alive. And so we were happy both to have people like original signatories of that 1970 statement, have uh, former Black Panthers who themselves stood in solidarity with Palestine in the 1960s uh, sign on to this statement that we released in 2015, along with a, a newer generation of, of, of Black activists. So, you know, there's a tradition there that that um, that there there is a certain thread kind of uh, connecting the 1960s with today. But we're hoping to really uncover it and, and highlight it and, and build on it anew. Your, your statement speaks about the assault on Gaza uh, last year and, and also about the brutality in all of the occupied territory um, and Israel itself. And you see similarities, at least I do, with the, the struggle against apartheid that carried on beyond 1970 through the 80s. Um, do, you, do you see any... But of course, apartheid in South Africa, not in Israel. I mean, do you see right. any any similarities between that effort uh, in the '80s to build global opposition to the South African government and and what's happening now, or hopefully happening now, with regard to Israeli racism? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, well, well, one thing it, it's worth saying that before activists made the connection between apartheid in South Africa and apartheid in Israel. The Israeli government and South African governments themselves made the connections. I mean, Israel and South Africa had extensive relations, uh, including um, Israel selling weapons to South Africa and so on. So, you know, it's funny that sometimes we'll get flack in the movement for um, for comparing South African apartheid to Israeli apartheid, and, and, and some will say, oh, you're, you're talking about apples and oranges, these are two different things. Well, Israel and South Africa didn't think that. They actually worked together. Um, and so recognizing that, recognizing that the, those connections, activists who have been, taken up the strategy of boycott, divest, and sanctions, for Israel, uh, BDS have really been inspired by the the struggle of the global solidarity with with uh, people resisting black folks resisting South African apartheid, and so there's, there's absolutely um, not only parallels in terms of what apartheid society looked like in Israel and and in South Africa during the apartheid era, but also parallels with the resistance. I think it's it's really important. You know, when I was a kid. Um, which you know, I was born in the in the early '80s when when apartheid South Africa was still uh, it was still in the apartheid era. My parents didn't know too much about about foreign policy or international relations or, or world politics, but they knew about one country, and that was South Africa. I remember my dad saying, "You know, we don't buy sneakers from this country or from from this company because they're made in South Africa." Uh, that's a good thing that that people um, all around the world who may or may not be well versed in world politics know that there are certain countries 
that whose whose crimes are so despicable and frankly whose whose crimes have a parallel with the worst aspects of of US history and and racist US society that those people can say we stand in solidarity with the struggle against this uh, we want to, to build that kind of consciousness around the world regarding Israel and Palestine, and I think that it's, written, it's been really successful. What we have is a global, nonviolent movement that anybody can plug into, you know, because, <laughs> unfortunately, um, Israeli products uh, and, and international relations between Israel and, and states around the world are so extensive. The, 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 flip, the flip side of that is that anybody can join the BDS movement and uh, and resist the sale of those products and resist international relations with Israel. So I think it's a really powerful thing um, and one that has a, a specific resonance with the black struggle here in the U.S. I, I think it is. Uh, and it's interesting in your statement that you bring up uh, imprisonment mass incarceration in in Israel and in the United States and and a corporation that's involved in both places uh, G4s which you right. uh, propose as a target for I mean, people can't stop you know buying prisons every day but they can um, push for divestment um, is there I I, re- I remember not long ago there was some solidarity fasting in in prisons in in Palestine and in the United States at the same time over Separate issues was that was that part of building this solidarity and, and and what can people actually do toward toward divesting from you know prison profiteers uh, in in Israel and the U.S. Right. I mean, you know, I'm not familiar with the, the particular um, uh, fasting action here in, in the U.S. and so I don't know the extent to which it was coordinated with with um, resistance in Palestine. Of course. Organizing resistance, you know, in the inside of prisons is, is incredibly difficult, and yet it's something that there's a history of in this country and something that is happening right now. It's, it's really good that there is a growing knowledge of mass incarceration. I think that the publishing of Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow, has really it's been a watershed in terms of... Um, developing an understanding of what what anti-black racism looks like in the U.S. right now and, and the, 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 the particular form of mass incarceration. So <clears throat> what, what we're hoping is that as more people are talking about that here in this country, that we recognize that the same forces that are, that are very much involved in mass incarceration, the, the, the corporations uh, that, that not only run private prisons, but also those that do consulting on how best to run prisons to the government and so on, they're the same corporations that are working uh, to, to lock up Palestinians and repress the Palestinian struggle. Uh, and, and really, the U.S. and Israeli states are always comparing notes, whether we're talking about uh, bombing other countries or talking about incarcerating you know, black people here and Palestinians there as, as part of uh, as part of politically controlling those societies. So if they're sharing notes, then we should share notes. You know, that, that's really the whole idea behind the statement is let's recognize the parallels that really our, the, our common enemies have already recognized. They're connecting the dots, and we want to do that, too. 
Yes, indeed. We're, we're speaking with Curry Peterson Smith, who is part of uh, this statement at blackforpalestine.com. Over 1,100 black activists, scholars, etc., have signed this statement of solidarity with Palestine. Uh, you went there, uh, Curry. You went to Gaza in 2009. I wonder what your experience was, um, because here is a statement against Israeli racism and when when you look into the Israeli government and in Israeli culture you you see racism everywhere and yet there are still millions of people in the United States who I think don't think about Israel in those terms and think it's you know perhaps racist to suggest that Israel might be racist in some way right. um, what what did you what did you actually experience over there wow well of course, it's a very long story that I'll try to make short. And and truthfully, to 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 really um, to really talk about my experience on on the trip to Gaza in 2009, I have to not only talk about the Israeli government and and all that they're doing to you know surround and besiege Gaza um, and uh, repress that population, but I have to talk about the U.S. and Egyptian governments, actually, which, which were such um, enormous obstacles in my delegations getting into Gaza, it, it made it very clear that it made it very clear what this alliance looks like. So, I was part of the Viva Palestina um, 2009 delegation. There were a number of delegations under the banner of Viva Palestina. The first one being from Britain, where people drove over uh, over land through Europe and through North Africa and, and, and up into Gaza. This was the second delegation um, led by a Scottish member of Parliament, George Galloway, um, and it involved U.S. citizens, primarily U.S. citizens, so there were some, some uh, folks from elsewhere as well. And so we flew to Cairo and wanted to, to get into Gaza that way, and we were stonewalled at every step of the way by the Egyptian government. And, and so, you know, folks should understand that when we're talking about Palestine and Gaza in particular, of course, Israel controls two land borders with Gaza uh, and controls the sea alongside Gaza. But the, the fourth side of Gaza on, on its southern border is controlled by the Egyptian government, actually, um, who has been uh, really a, a criminal partner in in this siege of Gaza. So, you know, and this was this was in 2009, before the revolution in 2011, uh, when Hosni Mubarak was still in power. So, to, to, to make a long story short, his government did a lot to put up obstacles to us getting into Gaza. And when we went to the U.S. Embassy in Cairo uh, to, to kind of secure uh, our papers and go through the, the proper channels uh, as U.S. citizens to be able to go to Gaza, we had to sign these waivers that essentially waived our rights as U.S. citizens once we entered Gaza. That is, we had to read the statement that basically says the U.S. Embassy advises against any travel to Palestinian territories that includes journalists, that includes people doing medical aid, and so on. And basically, if you go there, you're on your own. Don't count on the U.S. Embassy to help you if you get in a jam. So, um, ultimately, we got in, and uh, it was, we, we got in, uh, the, the Israelis and the Egyptians allowed us 24 hours in Gaza. We had been there for, for two weeks trying to get in, and, and ultimately they said, you can go in, but you can't bring all of the medical supplies that you, uh, that you 
came to bring, and you only have 24 hours. So it was a pretty incredible um, experience. And to to not be allowed in with medical supplies uh, yeah. seems to go against the whole pretended uh, effort of, of U.S. policy to be a good doer of humanitarian uh, deeds. I mean, Gaza is a... Is, a place besieged is walled in and you can't bring in necessary medical supplies. How, you know, how does the state department defend this? Right. I mean, really, I think the only way that, well, I'll say what Israel says is that, you know, there's all of these items that they call dual use items. That is, yes, they're medical or, or, you know, civilian use items, uh, but they could potentially be used for military purposes. And so they have this, you know, extensive and, and pretty silly list of, of items that are banned from Gaza. And, and so when we were going in, among the items that were banned were, was paper. <laughs> like paper wasn't allowed into Gaza because that could potentially um, be used, you know, for, for military purposes. Uh, and so paper airplanes, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, weapon of mass destruction. So you know, uh, obviously, when you, when you the first thing you think about when you think about paper is you know writing writing things and taking notes. But one of the things that that one should do is try to imagine running a healthcare system without paper. I mean, think about the prescriptions. Think about all the messages that have to be communicated. Think about all the documentation that has to go into. Uh, running a healthcare system, medical histories, and so on. Uh, if you don't have paper, then you've got a, a major problem. So, you know, the, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, uh, of course, supports this embargo. And the only way you can really justify it is if you ignore the fact that Palestine is a society, <laughs> like any society, <laughs> um, and that Palestinians are, are, are people, um, if you if you ignore that and instead see this entire population as a group of militant fanatical terrorists, that's the only way you can possibly justify, uh, you know, not letting in chocolate, which was on the list of things banned, um, uh, as well as, as as well as a whole host of of medical uh, supplies. Well, I, I think that there are those who do see it that way, and I think that, you know, not only are the Israeli police training U.S. police departments, including those involved in the murder in Baltimore uh, and and so forth, but uh, they're, they're training U.S. public relations, uh, U.S. media, right. uh, to think about the public uh, the way, or at least parts of the U.S. public, the way that the Israeli media thinks about Palestinians. I mean, don't you see those mm -hmm. those trends sort of going back and forth between the United States and Israel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was first when I first came into an awareness of the Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle. I had the experience that a lot of people in the U.S. have, which is, you know, I was immediately kind of forced to answer the question: Well, how can you support those terrorists? So, yeah, I mean, there is a tremendous amount invested into people here looking at Palestinians and not seeing human beings, not seeing 
um, people who are struggling against injustice, but seeing these terrorists who are a problem to be dealt with. But I, I do think that there is um, there's a change happening, and it, you know I think about it in terms of of good news and bad news. The bad news is that I think in recent years Israel has gotten far more um, aggressive and just vicious. I mean, the number of um, you know there's kind of a daily. Uh, brutality that's just woven into the fabric of the Israeli state in Israeli society, but the the, the kind of uh, all-out military offensives, you know, like the one that we saw last year in Gaza, have been happening with much greater frequency uh, since since 2000, you know, since since the 2000s. So that's been totally catastrophic. I do think, though, that. The flip side, the good news, is that people, you know, it's one thing to kind of hear this messaging that these people are terrorists, they're a problem, but then you turn on the TV and you see the reality, which is this besieged population that doesn't have a military, uh, that's surrounded on all sides by, by, uh, the, the, by Israel and its allies, uh, Israel, which has, uh, you know, this, one of the, the largest militaries in the world, Israel which controls all of its borders and the sea and the airspace and so on, and, and, and you, you just see the lopsided death tolls of all of these um, of all of these 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 attacks, and it's it just it's, it's, it disrupts you know the message. I mean, you, you can't take an honest look at at what happened in Gaza last year and think that the Palestinians are the aggressor. Yeah. You know, so and, and I do think that there is a parallel thing happening in the United States where. Um, you know, and of course, there there are differences um, uh, between the U.S. and Israel, but there there are parallels too. Where for decades we've heard that black people are criminals, you know, are are you know drug dealers and drug addicts and and you know violent and all of this, and then you know you look at Ferguson and you see this these militarized police confronting unarmed protesters. Um, and, it, and it, it's got to raise some questions, <laughs> and I think that it, did, it has raised some questions. And in the past year, we've seen some shifts in attitude, you know, by virtue of of resistance, but also of how heavy-handed, you know, the state is. So, you know, my, my, if, if there's something hopeful about it, because it shows that no matter how much they can invest in the PR, that can't work for all the people all the time. Yeah, and I think in both cases, uh, individual, independent people getting online, bloggers, YouTube videos, phone videos and photographs is playing a role. Um, there's less control uh, of images uh, if people are able to get things out of Ferguson or Gaza uh, without any sort of filter. Um, I, I, I want to ask you what you think of... Uh, what some people are seeing as an incredible victory over the Israeli uh, lobby arm in the United States in the in the support for the Iran agreement, um, because it seems to to some like a first that the Israeli government put everything into a demand and was was rejected. Uh, but now uh, the, the Secretary of State is apparently going to promise Israel, and when Netanyahu comes around November eighth, Obama is going to promise Israel forty five billion dollars worth of new weaponry uh, over the next decade, uh, including weaponry with which Israel could go ahead and start a war on. Iran by itself, and then 
you know, right. see if we can keep the U.S. out of it. At that point, um, we've got a, a whole bunch of organizations, including a couple that I work for, have started uh, something up, a letter to Obama at noweaponsforisrael.org, which we would uh, very much welcome uh, you and any other organizations joining us on. But what do you, what do you make of the Iran deal and, and what comes next? Yeah, well, you know, I think that um, those those two things that you mentioned taken together, um, you know, on one hand, the the U.S. signing this deal with Iran in a way that that defies, you know, what 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 the Israelis were hoping for, but at the same time, you know, kind of immediately after reassuring Israel that uh, there'll be additional weapons, because, of course, you know, there's kind of a baseline military funding that the U.S. always gives to Israel. There's there's a baseline diplomatic support, you know, on the, on the world stage that the U.S. always gives to Israel. And then it'll go above and beyond uh, at certain points to reassure Israel that, that you know, its best friend is in the United States. So I, I just, you know, I, I think it means... Um, <laughs> You know, I think that the the conversation there's this conversation among activists in the U.S. about the relationship between the U.S. and Israel that I really think that we're we're going to have to think about and kind of rethink about because I think that the the tendency there's two big tendencies. One is to see Israel, you know, as kind of the tail that wags the dog that somehow Israelis have hijacked, um, you know, what would be an otherwise democratic and kind of you know, humanitarian foreign policy, which um, I don't buy, just looking at what, you know, what the U.S. does elsewhere in the world. Uh, but, then, but then there's this other idea that Israel is just this kind of puppet of the United States, and the, and, and the U.S. is the puppet master. And, you know, when, when the U.S. Says, says jump, Israel says how high. And neither of those is really right. I and mean, we have our, um, our two countries, and, and, and certainly Israel... You know, I mean, it, it very much crafted itself as as a colony um, uh, at its at its founding, and colonies always need mother countries; they need sponsors, and so Israel has kind of sought that throughout its history. And yet, it's also its own distinct entity, uh, as as the United States is its own distinct entity, and they're allies. And of course, you know, the U.S. is a more powerful ally. It's not it's not an equal. Relationship, but this is an alliance where their interests converge for the most part, and then there are differences of opinion. But the the differences of opinion are not they're not fundamental. They're 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 about how do how do we have the Western domination of the Middle East, not whether or not we should. <laughs> but, but what's the best way to carry that out? And so right. Israel says, you know, an aggressive stance toward Iran. Well, at points the U.S. has agreed, and. You know, at the moment, the U.S. has said, "Well, actually, we want to we want to make this kind of tactical difference." But you know, these are this is this is a dispute among among friends, and I don't see that friendship ending anytime soon. So, you know, I think that we've got a lot of work cut out for us, and and I, I do think too. You know, I, I I tend to look at the the Iran deal also with, with the the critique that you know. It's the United States who who brokered this deal, and and why aren't we talking about U.S. nuclear proliferation? I mean, the U.S. has built the most extensive system or, or for Israeli. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like that. That's somehow totally off the table. I mean, it, it's 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 kind of remarkable that it doesn't even come up. We just we just um, 
you know, last month was the 70th anniversary of the U.S. Uh, attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so, you know, up to this moment, the United States is the only country in the world that's ever used atomic weapons in warfare, and Israel is the only country in the Middle East that has nuclear weapons. But that's somehow just not part of the conversation at all. So I think we've got a lot of, got a lot of work to do, and, and, you know, the Obama administration's follow-up with Israel to the Iran deal, well, we're sorry about that, but we're going to sell you some weapons, so don't worry. I mean, I, I think it just points to the work that we have to do here. Yeah, a long way to go. People should go to blackforpalestine.com and check it out. We've been speaking with Curry Peterson-Smith. Curry, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.